0: Hello, and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Monica Atheim. This week came the release of the sixth International Panel on Climate Change report. And if you worry at all about climate change, well, it made for a very sober read. The takeaway we all need to hear is the path to keeping global warming to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels is still open to us, but it's narrowing and it's difficult. All our major news outlets gave the IPCC report the coverage that it deserved, but they also quickly moved on to other news, primarily focusing on the Delta outbreak. Important though public health is, there are some who think We're focusing on COVID to an almost obsessive degree and ignoring other news as important or as critical. So are we once again burying our heads in the sand when it comes to global warming? It's been quite the week in Greece, Turkey, Algeria and the US state of California, which are on fire and Germany and China are recovering from major floods. We ask, is this the moment the world is finally ready to listen? And what about our media? Is it doing its bit in covering the IPCC's message clearly and with enough weight? Is it now giving the science of climate change the gravitas it clearly deserves? Joining us today via Zoom is Damien Cave, the Bureau Chief Australia for the New York Times, and Nico Maley, who's the National Environment and Climate Editor for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, but a former US correspondent and an expert on American politics too. Damien Cave and Nico Maley, welcome back to Fourth Estate. So it's been 15 years since An Inconvenient Truth was released. and, And in that time, we've seen electric cars go from expensive and impractical oddities to being, you know, a reasonably common sight on our streets. Renewables are now cheaper than their fossil fuel counterparts. They're pretty big and welcome changes. So should we approach this sixth IPCC report with a high degree of optimism, do you think? Or have, do you think we've been wasting precious time? Nick, I might come to you first on that one.
1: We've absolutely been wasting precious time. If you look at all of the charts, had we started doing what was recommended by scientists after the fifth report or the fourth report or any of the other reports, the task ahead of us would have been so much easier and so much less disruptive. That's one thing to say. Yeah. The second thing is that this report makes clear that climate change isn't something that we have to worry about in the distant future or even the near future. It's, it's improved attribution science tells us that the horrific bushfires that we've in, and drought we've endured in Australia, and that North America and Europe is or is enduring now, is a result of climate change. It's an immediate problem we are confronting. Yeah. What it does do, though. Uh, in some detail but you know you've got to be you've got to be an optimistic soul to accept that we can get it it says that there is no reason in the physical science that in the long run or in the medium run we can't stabilize the climate after mid-century and then slowly start to cool. that's where there is some scope for optimism and where people should be demanding action
0: well, We'll come to that issue uh, in a little while when we talk about the politics of it all because that is quite significant but Damien do you do you think that um, that there's hope in this report and that uh, you know that we should we should grab that hope and, and, and all of the, the things that we have managed to achieve since the last report and, and be slightly hopeful?
2: I mean I, I do think there's a little bit of hope in there both in the specificity of the science and in that, you know, they're quite clearly and directly saying this is the cause and we know it for certain and quite clearly able to say, you know, when these events that are happening are directly, you know, caused by climate change. And then finally being able to say, listen, this isn't hopeless. There, there is, you know, significant change that is going to be inevitable, mm-hmm. but, you know, the scale of that change from beyond that sort of point of inevitability is really up to us. And so I do think that there is a fair bit of hope. I also think that the world, you know, when you when you get out beyond the politics, when you talk to people in business, there's a lot of activity going on. It's nowhere near enough, and that's sort of the challenge. You're kind of, you know, walking on a treadmill that's moving a lot faster than you. And so you're, you, there's a lot more that needs to be done. But there are some encouraging signs in the way that the corporate world and that the business world is really trying to, to change and is really recognized that, you know, certain things like coal. Are inevitably going to die out and that the world is changing and that they need to get on board.
0: Mm. Well, since the three of us were last talking, there's been a change of administration in the United States and uh, with that major changes in America's climate stance. So I guess, Damien, can we say America's back and it's going to lead the world on climate change?
2: Well, it's hard to say, right? I mean, the United States is a divided, difficult place to get anything done at this point. But it's quite clear that there's a renewed sense of urgency about this issue from the Biden administration, you know, from the way that it's dealing with domestic politics and, and its infrastructure bill to the messaging that it's giving to the world. You know, a United States trying to lead on climate change is back. Trying is that word that I would emphasize. And so the question is, To what extent will it be able to get it done politically within its own country and to what extent will it actually be able to lead other countries to where things need to go? Because it's really not just the United States that you need here. You you need a a tipping point of consensus from a whole lot of different countries that are major emitters.
0: And Nick, what do you think? Do you think that if the United States were to be successful in in making headway on this issue, if they were to... Uh, emerge as a a kind of beacon to follow globally, that Australia, with its recalcitrant government on this point, might follow suit?
1: Yeah, I I certainly do. I think that uh, any grounds for optimism we have depends on the United States, and the United States, this administration, is apparently determined to take action. We can see that not only in its rhetoric, but in the infrastructure bill that they've just passed. It's not enough, but it's, it's significant movement. But there's also the fact that uh, they're moving in lockstep with Europe. Uh, the United Kingdom might have uh, performed its Brexit, but it too is determined to move on this. Boris Johnson's copying some criticism from local or well, from his own domestic um, environmental advocacy groups. But he, his rhetoric is right on this. He just yesterday, the day before, called for the end of coal, and I understand it recent G7 talks, he called for a timeline for the end of coal. Yeah. There is movement from Japan, there is movement from Korea, uh, and there is movement from China, though the amount of movement is contested. So Australia, whatever its uh, two major parties would like to do or are able to do, it simply has no choice. Its, its trading partners are moving and Australia is a trading nation.
0: So, okay, can we just talk about the media's treatment of this report for a moment? I mean, were you both happy with how the media in general covered uh, the sixth report? Nick, what, can I start with you?
1: Oh, look, I've been in the midst of it. The, the media that I have looked at, I've looked at very rapidly. I haven't really come to a point of view on that, but the sense that I get is that it was treated as significant and as serious. Uh, and that is the case, I have been talking with people, with colleagues, today that, you know, what do we do when we take a breath? uh, And the difficulty, and also looking at our our own statistics of who's reading what. Mm. And and the problem with this story is that while those of us deeply engaged with it see the significant differences between the fifth report and the sixth or others, the news that we're bringing to our readers is, well, guess what, it's still bad news. We're still not doing enough. It is difficult engaging people with that story and we have to find new and better ways of doing that beyond uh reporting of of the ipcc and, and beyond glasgow i suppose so,
0: so how do you do that
1: i had a long and interesting conversation with a, an engineer and physicist this morning and i'll be you know turning to solutions the ipcc in this report doesn't do that it'll do it in its next i think i think we have to balance our explanation of how and why Politicians uh, succeeding or failing with these big ideas. I think we need to be reminding people that they, they need that there are uh, huge uh, in, uh, there are huge technological changes happening as we speak. What they are and what their potentials are. And as Damien was saying, that the, the the way that business and finance and investment is moving at the moment is extraordinary. And that's a really interesting story to be telling and an important story to be telling. It is, at least in this country, I would have thought, streets ahead of government.
0: So, OK, so, so you're talking there about perhaps turning the lens of you know, constructive journalism or solutions-based journalism to this issue. Is that what you mean?
1: I suppose. And I, you've got to be really careful with this because there is the risk of underplaying the immediate and catastrophic risk. Hmm. Uh, and, and that's, I think, what reporters have sought to do in coverage, in coverage of the IPCC assessment. But then after that, there's only so many times you can tell your reader that the reader either believes it or doesn't, uh, and certainly hasn't got time to go waiting in a 3,600-page doc- document. Yeah. So, yeah, we do have to turn to solutions, not to suggest, don't worry, we got this, but to say, these are the sorts of things you should be expecting uh, institutions and policymakers to be engaging with.
0: Damien what, what do you um, what do what are you thinking on this point were you when you observed the way the Australian media covered this report what what were your thoughts
2: yeah you know I thought it was interesting I thought in general it was treated as quite significant kind of across the board to me it sort of marked uh, a bit of an adjustment or a bit of uh, advance in terms of the debate and that it was pretty widely accepted that the science is well established we're no longer arguing is climate change real and are humans causing it which mm-hmm. sounds like a small point that should have been established and concluded many, many years ago, but in Australian media, as recently as the bushfires, not so long ago, that was not. So, you know, I do think that that's a sign of improvement. There are still, you know, lots of, there are lots of stories, I think, that are sort of too focused to some degree on the report and not enough about sort of the broader kind of context and what it means, I think, to real people. And and to, to Nick's point about solutions, you know, um, I also think it's important to highlight the sort of segments of society that are already moving in this direction. So one of the stories that I saw that I actually really liked, I think it was in this, I think it was in the Sydney Morning Herald, was about how farmers are totally on board with, you know, changing for climate change and are used to making these kinds of adjustments. And so the question is just will the politics catch up with with these rural farming, you know, communities that are already sort of there. And so, you know, that I thought was a good example of a story showing that it's this, this, the politics of it are a, a lagging indicator that in a lot of ways, some of the groups that you might think are opposed to this idea are actually far ahead of the politics. And, so, and that's in part because they see it as both a necessity and to some degree in a lot of businesses, they see it as an opportunity. You know, this is an enormous market, the market for you know, carbon-free production, the market for green energy, the market for changing the way that energy consumption and costs work is a potentially enormous opportunity. And so, you know, if if there are a lot of companies and a lot of parts of society that are getting on board with that, and that that part of the story, I think, could be told a little bit more clearly.
0: So you think a constructive lens might help stop the political class, you know, dodging the issue as they seem to have done for so many years?
2: I mean, one of my main criticisms of Australian journalism generally is it's too, it's over-resourced on the politics and under-resourced on the reality on the ground for normal people. And so I I think that this is another example where the coverage tends to be so much about the intricacies and insularity of who's gonna vote what or who supports what in the party room and and not taking enough of a broad societal lens to the issue.
0: Nick, what do you make of that?
2: I
1: think that's very good criticism. Although I should say that my colleague from Canberra, Michael Foley wrote the story Damien just referred to. Yeah, I I thought that story uh, was great. So yeah, yeah.
2: that's that's that. There is there, and that's the thing. It's not that there's you know not great coverage. It's just that the the sort of incentives of the system seem to favor political coverage. It it really
1: it. I think Australians as well probably. uh, I'm probably veering off topic though, but yeah, I do think we focus too much there, and I don't know that our readers necessarily always want that. I, I I think our readers do want to hear what actual people have to say rather than uh, very practiced uh, politicians and interest groups. Mm.
0: And Nick, I, I just want to take you back to a comment that you made earlier about the SMH's coverage of, of the report. And, and I wondered whether, you know, you gave thought in the afternoon, the, the coverage on Tuesday morning was, was was fantastic, but it was pushed way down the front page by afternoon, replaced by, amongst other things, a Sydney cider going to Byron Bay with COVID-19.
1: And it's difficult to answer that, you know, it's difficult to know whether to answer that as someone from The Herald or someone who directs environmental coverage and climate coverage for The Herald. I, I would I would say, I suppose, that um, you know, you can describe that, that Byron Bay story as frivolous or because we're talking about, you know, in Byron Bay and real estate in in the same breath, Um, or you can say that it's about this terrible disease and lockdown spreading into a whole other part of of New South Wales and its economy. I can see why uh, a news decision would be made along those lines.
2: Right. I mean, that's a great story. You got to tell that story. (laughs) I I have to say that's the story that everyone in Sydney wanted to know who was this guy and why the hell did he do that? So I don't, I don't. I don't question that. I mean, to me, and and Nick would probably agree with this, it's also just about the body of coverage over time. And so the other challenge, right, is there's a ton of coverage when a a big report like this comes out. But how sustained is the the focus and how sustained is the placement for these kinds of stories over time? And and that, I think, you know, slowly I've seen that change in Australia just in the four years that I've been here. But I think that's the bigger question is, can, can you continue to prioritise this story for readers and make clear to them that this is an important, important thing for them?
1: One other point I make there, Monica, is that yes. I think that most readers going to the home pages of news organisations at the moment are going for COVID coverage. They want yeah. to know how their daily life is being affected. Those readers who are subscribers will find the environmental coverage anyway. And those readers who are browsing through their various social media platforms will find the climate coverage if, if their various algorithms bring it to them. Few of our readers, I think, or a, a, not few, but a, a, a substantial minority, but still a minority, would probably look at a homepage and evaluate the importance of the story by its ranking on the page. Right.
0: Yeah. Well, I suppose that would suit, the, um, suit, suit Canberra to an extent as well, to have this story, you know, kind of taking a bit of a backseat whilst uh, COVID rages.
1: I'm sure this, I'm sure Glasgow and the whole thing is far easier for them uh, during COVID.
0: Mm. Damien, in terms of the US, have you seen any major changes in the US media on, on climate um, to match the change in direction out of Washington?
2: I mean, a little bit. I think that, the, you know, following the sort of details of the infrastructure bill and a lot of sort of what the Biden administration is bringing to the table, domestically has gotten a lot of attention. And um, so I do think that that's, you know, that that's one sort of just shift following what Washington's doing. You know, you've also got crazy fires in the West and California, which once again puts this, you know, in front of mind for people and on the front pages of places, you know, papers and, and news reports all over the country. So I do think that's the case. But, you know, I was, I was just talking to the international editor last night, and we were talking about climate change. And he was saying, you know, the challenge is that For a lot of people, if you're not in California or or near the fire, it doesn't feel real still. And so, you know, even as the New York Times, even as, you know, Dean Bacay, our editor, is constantly telling us the climate is the biggest story in the world. um, You know, it's hard to get readers and it's hard to sort of maintain interest in a story that does start to feel repetitive over time. And so, you know, I do think that there's been a change but I frankly think that there's still room for improvement. I think we can do a better job of getting people to, to pay attention and to, to understand what this all means.
0: So we've seen, um, I wanna talk about misinformation a little bit because we've seen in, in recent times and Sky News has certainly found out in recent weeks that there's very little tolerance in Australia for COVID-19 disinformation. Is it now time that we expect the social media platforms, Facebook, uh, you know, Google, Twitter, all of them to come on board and say, enough is enough, we don't allow misinformation on COVID-19 and we will not allow it on climate change.
2: Uh, You know, I did a story at some point about Craig Kelly and the way he was using Facebook to just peddle all kinds of misinformation a while ago. And, you know, it's interesting the way that information just creates, because of the algorithms, you know, a cyclical degree of interest and just continues to grow in importance. And, And I don't think Facebook has really grappled with it by any means. And I do think that there's gonna be increased pressure for them to do so. Mm-hmm. To some degree, what we've seen with COVID and, the, and, and you know even things like Christchurch is a demand for, for accountability and for doing something to sort of manage misinformation. And I just think we haven't quite gotten to the point where climate change is the primary focus of that campaign. But, but I think it's coming. And I think things like this report you know, make it easier to, to go to Facebook and really try to hold them accountable on this stuff. Um, It's just a question of whether or not it works. I mean, I'm not sure Facebook, you know, will do anything beyond the bare minimum to to get rid of misinformation.
0: Can you see, Nick, a time when the social media platforms apply the same level of uh, misinformation, scrutiny and sanction to outliers as it does on the issue of, say, COVID?
1: Oh, look, Damien's right. The, The improvement in the science of attribution, of linking a weather event to climate change, has improved so much that... Maybe there is scope for that, and some jurisdictions are more open to it. You know, if you think of Europe. On the other hand, what if someone gets up and says, "Well, I don't believe it." How do you how do you sanction that? That's not misinformation. That's someone voicing a view. You might see it as completely ill informed. I do. But how do you how do you say if someone gets up and says, either I don't care or I don't believe? It's a very difficult thing to sanction, isn't it?
0: It is a very difficult thing to sanction. Um, it is, but as we've seen with uh, with COVID nineteen, there appear to be ways of doing it, right?
1: But you can with COVID nineteen if you, you you can sanction someone for getting up and saying that uh, a, a a chemical that kills lice is a useful tool to fight COVID because that's that's a, a piece of information which could cause someone great harm that's out there. It's different from saying I don't believe. In something, it's different. I don't know if I'm making myself clear. No, no,
0: you are. But I mean, I think that that you could expect that from say audience. But then you have commentators, for example, um, you know, uh, Alan Jones talks <clears throat> as though he he has he has fact in his hand that he has better hold on the science. Is there something that the platforms ought to be doing about that in relation to climate?
1: That's that's a really interesting case, isn't it? Because and and I could be wrong here, but I thought that Alan Jones recently lost his column in. News limited newspapers partly as a result of that, and yet but that was on COVID. That was on COVID, yeah, and yet on Sky News owned by the same organisation. Uh, well, no, that's been sanctioned as well. So yes, maybe you're right. Maybe there is scope for that. I I, I don't have fully, uh, quite obviously, formed views on this. I, I think sanctioning people for holding views is really difficult, no matter how irresponsible I see some news organisations have been with some really crucial issues.
2: Yeah. I mean, I was, the only thing I would add to that is, you know, I I think Nick's right when it comes to sort of opinion, but some of the things you see, you know, from Craig Kelly and others are just denials of clear facts around, you know, the severity of fires in Australia over time. Um, There, there are like some clear violations of just, you know, factual, (laughs) informative, you know, sharing And, and that stuff can be sanctioned. It is, it's hard. There's a lot, I think that you know, as Nick says, you you just can't really do much about. But there are some things. And I think the more that the public and the media and politicians focus on climate change, the more you're going to see a rash of this very specific, you know, misinformation that can be sanctioned if they so choose.
0: You're listening to Forth Estate on the Community Radio Network and our guests this week are Damien Cave and Nico Maile. Can I uh, turn now to, uh, I guess, the politics of, of climate change? One aspect I'd like to touch on is that opposition to it is now deeply part of, the, of conservative identity politics. How do the two of you see this playing out? Is it possible that conservatives will move on, embrace the science? Will they have any choice if nations where conservatives are not in power move on? It, it, it's kind of harping back to a, a, a subject we, we touched on earlier. But Damien, do you see that there, there will have to be of necessity a movement
2: here? I do. And I think to some degree, it's already happened. You know, like I remember talking to the mayor up in Mackay about transitioning away from coal. And, you know, there there's a recognition that that's going to happen. It's just a question of how quickly and what's put in place before that happens. And so I think that there already is a movement to accept that the momentum is moving in this direction. And that's what you see in conservatives in the business world, whether it's in Newcastle or other places that are very conservative. Mm-hmm. But what, I, what, you, what you see, though, is still an impediment to change and saying, well, well, we, can't, we don't want to move that fast. And, oh, well, what are the costs? We need to make sure we understand the cost. So I think the framework for opposing change, which is the real problem here, is, um, is still there. It's just that it's taking a different form. So it's, you know, it's a little bit, you know, there's been some, it's almost like, you know, like a mountain where there's been a little bit of a landslide, but the mountain hasn't come down yet. So there's been some progress, but it's nowhere near kind of where it's going to be in there. And that side of the fence is still going to put up barriers as much as possible, not just because of the fear of economic costs, which is a valid concern, but also because it is tied to identity. And so, you know, you're, you're asking people to really alter who they think they are in part on the basis of arguments made by people that they think don't understand their way of life. And mm. so something about that identity piece of it needs to be broken through. And there are a lot of psychologists who have talked about this and have figured out ways to do this, but it's just a question of whether or not policymakers do that.
0: Nick, what do you, what do you think?
1: I think this is a really fascinating conversation. Um, it is identity politics in Australia and in the United States, but it's not in the United Kingdom at all where Margaret Thatcher was the first person quite famously to address climate change as a significant issue on the floor of the UN. It's not in Europe where the far right is, embraces climate change as much as the center and far left. Um, But in this country and in the United States for a handful of reasons, it it, it has become part of cultural identity. And I I think that must shift Um, partly because uh, the organizations and the institutions which would normally lend their support financially and rhetorically, I suppose, to conservative side of politics, they've already moved. As as we were discussing that piece earlier, the the agriculture and farming sector has moved, finance has absolutely moved. You can't can't find someone in a big boardroom who is not more concerned about this, I think, uh, than some members of our federal cabinet. And even when you look at at, at party politics, you know, it was put to me in a conversation I had with someone yesterday that there's just a small handful of people, of elected representatives of the National Party who are intransigent on this, who, who really want to support fossil fuels over any other, over any action, and they, in turn, hold the the, the the cabinet to, not to ransom, but, you know, they have sway because of their position and their constituency. So, and because those, those people have the support of some people uh, very powerful backers in media and industry, and they're, they're able to hold that sway. I think that must change. I think it will.
0: So, so then what do you think we should expect from Scott Morrison if he goes to the UN Climate Conference in Glasgow? Are you expecting something to move there, new ambitious targets, a, pro- a proper path to net zero by, 20, by 2050?
1: I think we can expect whether or not it will be a guarantee or an indication of of, a, of an aim of improving on the current goal of reducing emissions on 2005 levels by 26 to 28% by 2030. That's a, that's a big handful of words. But the main goal of Glasgow is not 2050. It's to, to get countries on a to agree to, to put themselves on a path to 2050, which means substantial cuts by 2030. The world will be applying pressure and is applying pressure on Australia to make a commitment on that. Elements of the National Party are holding out and saying, well, if we're going to come on board for that, we want X, Y and Z. I'm not close enough to that. You know, my, uh, my colleagues in Canberra are uh, uh, more across that than I am. But, but there is that holdout. I think that it's quite clear that the Prime Minister would like to make an announcement. I also think it's quite clear that Australia will still, after whatever that announcement is, if it happens, will still be a laggard in the eyes of many.
2: Yeah, I think that's probably true um, in terms of the Australia being seen as a laggard. Um, it seems to me that Morrison's going to do as, as, as little as he can in order to protect his sort of political flank, even as the sort of forces of change keep moving forward through business, through technology, through a bunch of these other things.
0: And I mean, how will that be viewed if that happens, if that's what he ends up you know, arriving in Glasgow with basically nothing new or just a few platitudes? How will that be viewed by Washington and by the Biden administration?
2: Well, I think it'll be viewed very negatively, but I also don't think they'll be very surprised. You know, I mean, I think, you know, they have a sense of where Morrison and where the politics are at in Australia, and they've spoken pretty strongly in opposition to that. But I, I don't think that they're expecting, you know, some giant change from Morrison. And they'll they'll no doubt highlight and celebrate whatever change he makes. And, um, you know, and I also think that, you know, some of this is is performative, you know, like there are there are a lot of things that are happening in Australia, whether Morrison wants it to or not. You know, the mining industry is changing quite rapidly in terms of how it, it works with energy. Um, and so, you know, to some degree, it's quite possible that he'll be you know, kind of winking at one side or another and, and signaling to, to, the, to that sort of intransigent community, no, no, I'm still with you. While in fact, I was saying to the Americans, don't worry, I'm gonna say X, but we're really gonna move towards Y.
0: Don't you love politics? Uh, Look, I think on that note, we might leave it there. I thank you both very, very much for a fabulous discussion and for your time, and uh, stay safe.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: On that note, I'd like to thank both Damien Cave and Nico Maley for being on 4th Estate. And thanks for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. 4th Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. And make sure you subscribe to 4th Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk everything about media, politics and, of course, everything in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle there Estate AU. Thanks to my producer, Anthony dockhall My name's Monica Attard and thank you for listening.